God, we thank you for uh, the privilege of gathering uh, as your people. And Lord, our heart's prayer is that you would do it again. God, you are so faithful in meeting with us every single week and feeding us your word. And we pray, God, that you would do it again here this morning, that you would give us exactly what we need. Lord, you know all of the burdens, the struggles, the issues that, that we bring into this place. And we pray that you would meet us there, that you would show us Jesus, and that we would walk out of here changed, looking more like him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the early part of John chapter 2 at Jesus' first uh, miraculous sign where he changed water into wine at Cana in Galilee. And today we're transitioning and looking at the second uh, miraculous sign that John records for us uh, in this gospel. Just by way of reminder, uh, John actually provides seven different signs uh, for us all to show that Jesus is uh, the Son of God. Just want to remind you that these are not randomly selected. Jesus, of course, did more uh, than seven miraculous signs, uh, but seven was the number for the Jewish people, uh, meaning completion or perfection. And so John is trying to show us, even in the number of signs that he records for us, that Jesus is the full and the complete revelation of God. And so as we look at uh, this second sign of the temple cleansing, before we dive in, I just want to address the fact that in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the temple cleansing actually shows up towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Okay, John records it here on the front end in the beginning of his ministry. Now, some point that out and say, see, this is why we can't trust the Bible. This is why uh, the Bible contradicts itself. Even the gospel writers can't even agree on when the temple cleansing happened in Jesus' ministry. And yet those that argue that fail to realize that Jesus did this more than once. Okay, just like he uh, fed the 4,000 or the 5,000 more than once. That in Mark chapter 6, he fed the 5,000. Mark chapter 8, he fed the 4,000. Jesus healed more than just one blind man. He did it at least three different times throughout the Gospels. And so we can safely conclude that he uh, cleansed the temple uh, more than once. In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, you have Jesus towards the end there being put on trial And the Jewish religious leaders bring these false witnesses before Jesus. And the false witnesses say that Jesus claimed that I will destroy this temple and in three days build another not made by man. Now it's interesting because that statement by Jesus doesn't show up anywhere in uh, the Synoptic Gospels. It only shows up in John's uh, account of the temple cleansing, leading us to believe that it had to have happened more than once. A second reason why we should believe that this happened more than once is immediately following the temple cleansing in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is crucified. And that clearly does not happen in John's uh, version. And so this definitely happened um, more than once. And so as we walk through this, I want to point out just why this sign is so significant to Jesus's ministry and to Jesus's identity. Now, last week at the the, the changing the water into wine, we looked at how significant that was as Jesus inaugurated uh, his ministry related to the new covenant, this new way of relating with God that was centered upon joy and satisfaction and God coming near to his people, bringing a complete cleansing. Here, we're going to learn something new. So the first thing I want to point out for us this morning in verses 13 and 14 is the significance of of the temple, the significance 
of the temple. In verse 12, John tells us that Jesus performed his first miracle, and then they went to Capernaum. Capernaum was about 16 miles uh, from Cana, and they were most likely here at Capernaum uh, making preparations for the Passover feast that was to be celebrated in uh, Jerusalem. And so in verse 13, we are told that Jesus goes to Jerusalem because of the Passover feast. This is what the Jewish people uh, did during the Passover time. They would go to Jerusalem, and so the city at this time was buzzing with people, with activity, with excitement, and with energy, but it was all centered around the Passover. Now, the Passover festival was a time of celebration. It was a time of remembrance of what God had done in the past, They were recalling the time in which God freed his people from the Egyptian rule and oppression. They remember the time in which God performed uh, the ten amazing plagues. And remember, those plagues actually culminated in the angel of death coming to each house and would actually kill the firstborn in each house unless you had blood smeared over the doorpost. And in that case, if you had uh, blood smeared over the doorpost, the angel of death would actually pass over uh, that house and kind of move on, hence the name, the Passover. And then after this time of of remembrance, they would actually have a a week-long festival, a week-long party celebrating and remembering all that God has done. So the, the, the feeling here as Jesus approaches the temple here should be one of celebration and one of joy. This would be like kind of Christmas time for us, uh, except it's on steroids. Christmas for us is usually uh, just a one-day celebration, unless you're the Lucas Savages, then it's several weeks. Uh, but for, for us, you know, it's kind of like this feeling of anticipating and remembering the birth of our Savior. Uh, just think about that in terms of all of God's people gathering together to have this week-long party celebrating all that God has done. That's what we have here in our passage uh, this morning, that the Jews would gather in Jerusalem, and each family was required to make an appropriate sacrifice in the temple that would then inaugurate this week-long festival. And so that's why we find Jesus in verse 14 in the temple. He's there to make an appropriate sacrifice to uh, inaugurate this great party. Now, the temple during this time had great significance for the Jewish people. In Jewish thought, this was the place that was more than just the location for the sacrifices. This was more than just the gathering point for the festival. But the temple was the dwelling place for God. That this is where God met with his people. This is where the people of God could experience the presence of God. In fact, the temple was this physical reminder that God was with them and that God was for them. Holy of Holies, in fact, was really considered God's actual throne room. And so there is a a sacredness to the temple. There is this anticipation of walking into the temple and and, and experiencing the very presence of God. Of God. Now you can trace the importance of the temple throughout uh, the Old Testament. We don't have time to do that here uh, this morning. But I do want to point out that in 20 BC, uh, Herod the Great made his attempt at rebuilding uh, the temple. Now, Herod the Great, he built uh, amazing structures throughout Israel. He built amazing uh, buildings all throughout. 
but he did it for his own glory. So before we think that Herod the Great was some nice guy, this is the same Herod the Great that ordered the slaughter of all the children below the age of two, right when Jesus uh, was born. And so he rebuilds this massive temple that was part of his legacy. Here's a picture um, for you of what this looks like. Now, this was a 26-acre type of structure here. This was massive, and it was glorious. This is one of Herod the Great's um, most amazing accomplishments. And I just want to point out here that there are four sections to Herod's temple. But this section here, the Gentiles' courtyard, this was on the outermost part of the temple. This was not considered holy ground, but it was reserved for the non-Jewish people to come, to worship, to pray, and to, and to make the appropriate sacrifices. But also, this was the place where, where verse 14 is happening, where the trading and the bartering and the negotiating uh, was taking place. This was a very loud and noisy area, and it was disrupting not the Jewish people's worship and prayer, but the Gentiles' worship and prayer. And that is partly why Jesus gets so upset is that people who are far from God are trying to draw near these Gentiles, and yet they're being bombarded with just a loud noise of business and trading and bartering. Now, this, this place was filled with animals and, and merchants trying to sell sheep and doves for people to make the appropriate sacrifices, but it was also the place where they exchanged foreign uh, currency into the Hebrew shekel. Okay, so there's a little bit of negotiating going on here, when in reality, this was supposed to be a very sacred place where the people of God could come and experience God's presence. Now, when you walked into the temple, and especially during this time, almost everybody needed to buy an appropriate animal in order to make the right kind of sacrifice. The reason for that is because not everyone in the first century owned uh, sheep and doves, so they had to purchase one. Furthermore, most people are traveling a long distance away in order to get to the temple, in order to get to Jerusalem during Passover. Jesus, for example, is traveling over three days from Capernaum to get to Jerusalem. And so it's just easier, even if you did have animals, just to come without your animal and to come and purchase it here. And this is where the corruption took place, right here in the bartering and the negotiating, uh, because according to the Old Testament law, uh, the right kind of sacrifice demanded that the animal that you are sacrificing be without spots or wrinkle. And so the priesthood would actually form this team or this committee called the inspectors that even if you brought your own animal, they would inspect the animal and they'd be ruthless in their inspection. They'd be pointing out, oh, there's a spot here, there's a wrinkle here. You need to buy one of ours in order to make an appropriate sacrifice. And so, of course, they're selling these animals at a high price, and in addition, they are charging a temple tax on top of that. So, Jesus is walking into this, okay? And this is where you see kind of the the righteous anger of Jesus bubbling up here, because he's walking into a place that was supposed to be sacred, It was supposed to be the place where people could meet with God, be made right with God, and yet they are bombarded with the noise of business and selfish gain. And this leads us to looking at the authoritative zeal of Jesus in verses 15 through 17. Jesus is walking into this. 
anticipating God's people to remembering his faithfulness, remembering how good he has been, and he walks in on a religious circus, bartering, negotiating, exchanging of money and animals, the noise of business. As one commentator put it, he described it as, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. And so what we find here, Jesus is, is confronted with this scene. And as a result, his zeal comes out. And the following verses gives us a picture of Jesus that is really uncomfortable to watch. Jesus reaches down, picks up some cords, he, he knots them together, and he makes a whip, and he cleanses the temple here. Uh, our imagination can kind of try to picture this scene of, of hearing tables crashing, money jangling across the floor as Jesus is driving out these money changers, these sellers, these inspectors out of the temple. Jesus in verse 16 says, take these, these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. We see the authority of Jesus come through by saying, this is my father's house was to be a place of worship. Now in this cleansing, we see Jesus' concern, not only for the purity of the temple, but we also see his concern for the Gentiles. We see his, his global concern for the non-Jews to, to actually have a place to worship and to pray. Now, I don't know about you, but reading this scene, picturing Jesus here, it, it makes us kind of uncomfortable. Like when I, when I tell you what, what, what comes to mind when I, when I say Jesus Christ, we usually don't think about Jesus with a whip driving out people from the temple. And so because of that, I just want to slow down for a moment, and I want to just unpack this scene a little bit and provide three characteristics of Jesus' display of authority that we need to keep in mind, not just from this passage, but even as we walk through the Gospel of John. Okay, so three characteristics about this scene. Number one, this was a righteous display of authority by Jesus. See, some would actually point to this passage and say, see, Jesus was not without sin. He clearly sinned in his anger. And yet, I want to kind of push back on that in a big way for multiple reasons and point out the fact that Jesus' actions here are actually rooted in Scripture. In the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21, it says, And on that day there will no longer be a merchant in the house of the Lord Almighty. In Malachi 3, it says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, and he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. That Jesus' actions here align with the Bible. And in fact, I think this is a great example of Ephesians 4.26, where the text says, In your anger, do not sin. The text does not say, never have anger, but it says, be godly in what you do with your anger and make sure that you're angry about the right kind of things, about the things of God. See, it seems like there is room, there is a category for us as believers to be righteously stirred up when the things of God are violated. Okay, now this isn't giving us license to, you know, make a whip and start, you know, using it at the dinner table when the last turkey leg is taken during Thanksgiving. That's not what the Bible is prescribing for us. 
But as we look at the example of Jesus, who is using a righteous display of his anger and his, his stirring up against the things of God, I think that we can imitate that as well. So this was a righteous display. Not only that, but secondly, this was a forceful display of Jesus. This was a forceful Now some want to water down Christ's intensity here. I remember reading one commentator this past week who was trying to argue the case no, no, Jesus didn't actually make a whip out of cords. There were just some, you know, reeds on the ground used for the cattle and the animals. He just picked those up and kind of tied them together, but he didn't use it. And, and yet that's not what the text says. The text clearly talks about Jesus making a whip of cords and driving them out of the temple. And yet part of me, I was reading, I was like, yeah, I mean, that portrayal of Jesus kind of lines up with how the majority of us picture Jesus. Jesus is typically meek. He's reserved, he's quiet, he's laid back, right? He kind of goes with the flow. That's typically how we picture Jesus. And look, while we definitely see aspects of that throughout the Gospels, we also need to have a balanced view of Jesus in what we, say, what we see throughout the Scriptures. That Jesus is also forceful, he's also strong, Honestly, he's kind of scary at times. Like I think about Revelation 19 where Jesus is riding on this white horse and his clothes, his garments are dripping with blood. He has eyes like the flames of fire. He's got this sword coming out of his mouth. Like that is a scary kind of Jesus. That's much different than the type of Jesus where he's in some field laying with the sheep with flowing hair, you know, just kind of hanging out with the kids there. Like, Like that's very different and yet we need both. We need both images, a balanced view of Christ, because if you lean towards one side or the other, that will lead you towards having an unhealthy relationship with God. Now, in this image of Jesus, and what we see in this text, is that Jesus is not afraid to invade the temple of our hearts and confront what's really going on in there. That Jesus will invade our hearts And he will confront the sin that's lingering there. He will confront ungodly thoughts. He will confront motives that are self-serving. And and what we see Jesus do in this temple is exactly what he tries to do in the lives of believers. Is he wants to overturn the tables of our sin and drive it out of our lives through bringing conviction and repentance in our hearts. Look, I would argue that we should not only tolerate this kind of Jesus, but we should be thankful for this kind of forceful Jesus because of the hardness of our heart at times, because of the the stronghold of sin that takes place in our hearts. We need a kind of Jesus that is this strong to be able to confront those things in our hearts and lead us into repentance. And so look, he's forceful but he's forceful in a good way and in a way that we desperately need. So he's righteous, he's forceful, but he's also, the last thing here is he's cleansing. He's cleansing. This authoritative zeal of Christ led him to purifying the temple. Jesus' complaint here is not that they are guilty of sharp business practices and should therefore reform their ethical life, but rather Jesus is saying that they should not be in the temple at all. See, what Jesus is doing here, he is cleansing something that has been contaminated by sin. And look, this is exactly what Jesus does. 
This is the kind of Jesus that we worship and that we follow. He cleanses that which is dirty. He cleanses that which has been contaminated by sin. And he brings wholeness and he brings restoration. He does this with churches. He does this with marriages. He does this with our thought lives and our sexualities and every area of our lives that has been contaminated by sin. Jesus enters into that space and he wants to cleanse it and bring wholeness. Look, he doesn't just he doesn't just bring forgiveness. Jesus is trying to drive out the sin that resides in our hearts in order to bring us true freedom. Look in the same way that he drove out the money changers and he overturned these tables. Jesus wants to drive out our sinful patterns of destruction and our sinful addictions and bring healing. Look, I'm so thankful that he doesn't just lavish grace and forgiveness upon us. I'm so thankful that God actually drives out the sin that resides in our lives. But look, that's uncomfortable. Like, maybe some of us would prefer a God who just forgives but doesn't drive out. Like, that's when, that's when he starts to step on our toes, isn't it? When he looks at the things that we're trying to hide in our lives, and he enters in just like he entered into this temple he starts seeing false motives. He starts seeing destructive thought patterns and sin that's, that's just kind of hiding out in our hearts. And he's trying to overturn those tables. Like that's, that's hard to receive from Jesus. Can't he just forgive us and move on? Can't we just swipe the grace card and, and receive mercy and then continue on? See, there is a difference between picturing the kind of Jesus that just forgives or the kind of Jesus that wants to forgive and drive out the sin that's in our lives, bringing true and complete repentance. It's the kind of difference that at least reminds me of my definition of cleaning the house and my wife's definition of cleaning the house. Now for me, my understanding of cleaning the house is, you know what, we're just going to pick up a few things here and then light a candle. And we're going to be good, right? As long as it smells good, it's clean, right? It looks okay on the outside. And yet, Lindsay has taught me that's, that's not cleaning. That's picking up. Like, if you just pick up and light a candle or spray some Febreze everywhere, like, you're not going to remove the stain of dirt or the cluster of dust. Like, actually cleaning is harder. It takes more time. It's deeper. But it is healthier, like I point that out this morning because I think some of us are settling with a Febreze approach towards sin and resisting a deep cleansing that Christ wants to perform in our lives. Like some of us are just settling for God just to forgive us instead of cleansing us and driving out the sin that's in our lives. Look, as, as the people of God on this side of the cross, as we're seeing what Jesus has done here, we need to be asking the question, what would Christ do in the temple of our own lives this morning? Well, what is he trying to do in your heart this morning as he's entering into that space? What is he, what is he finding? What is he wanting to overturn and, and drive out today? Well, Jesus walks into our hearts and he is righteous, he's forceful, and his aim is to cleanse us. We see a Jesus that we desperately need today. Well, not only that, but the third thing here I want to point out is that we see Jesus' symbolic prediction in verses 18 
through 22. We've seen the significance of the temple. We've seen the authoritative zeal of Christ. And now we see the symbolic prediction of Jesus that brings this whole interaction to a close. Jesus does something here that would make all of us very uncomfortable. And as a result, in verse 18, we see what the Jews respond with. That the Jews basically say, Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus, you expect to, to walk in the temple, walk into Jerusalem, and start ordering people around? Like, Jesus, you're, you're a son of a carpenter. Like, yeah, we, we've heard some things that you've done. We heard about the drama at the wedding. But you better show some credentials. You better show some miraculous signs and some authority in order to speak into this area of our lives. See, what we notice here is no hint of self-reflection by the Jews. No, no ounce of humility. There's, there's no pause for self-examination at Jesus' claims. There's no question of, man, is, is Jesus talking about us? Do, do we need to repent of this? Could, could I be in the wrong here? There's no hint of humility, but instead they're asking the wrong question. They're asking the question of Jesus, what authority do you have to do this in our lives instead of submitting to Jesus out of humility and contrition? And look, my question for us this morning is, do we do the same things with Jesus? When Jesus enters into the temple of our hearts, he starts flipping tables. Do we have the same reaction that the Jews have? When we start questioning the authority of Jesus, we start saying, Jesus, you don't have authority over my marriage. You can't speak into that area of my life. You can't speak into my finances. You can't speak into what I look at on the internet. You can't speak into who I am on all my social media platforms and, and every area of my life. Do we question the authority of Jesus when he starts bringing conviction? Do, do we start to twist Scripture, maybe become a, a, our own defense attorney to justify our sinful actions instead of out of humility and just open-handedly saying, search me, O God, know my heart, test me and know my thoughts, O God? How do you respond when God starts to bring conviction into your life? And I wish I could have been there in verse 19. As the Jews question his authority, he basically responds with, okay, I'll, I'll do something. I'll show you something. In fact, you'll do something. You'll destroy the temple. And three days later, I'm going to raise this back up. And remember, it's all about the temple. Temple, temple, temple. This was the focal point of God's people. And so the Jews, of course, respond with, are you crazy? Like this, this took 46 years to build. You expect to tear it down and rebuild it three days later? Of course, John says in verse 21 and 22, uh, Jesus was actually talking about his own body. Uh, Jesus was making a symbolic prediction. He wasn't talking about the physical temple being rebuilt, but he was predicting that after they, the Jews, would destroy Jesus' body on the cross, that three days later, Jesus would raise it back to life, thus providing a miraculous sign that Jesus is God. This is amazing because Jesus would later go to the cross and pay for the same sin that was taking place in the temple, in this courtyard, and the Jewish people completely missed it here. Love the humility of John as he's writing this in verse 22. 
he's humble enough to admit that he missed it the first time. He's like, man, yeah, we didn't really understand this until Jesus was raised from the dead. I'm sure the disciples were gathering as Jesus raised, and they're like, hey, do you remember that temple thing that happened a while back? That's what he was referring to here. He's talking about his own body, and so the penny has dropped for them as they reflect on all that Jesus has accomplished. Look, there's so much in here. There's so much for us as far as application, as far as implications for us as new covenant believers on this side of the cross. And so I just want to provide maybe three applications today. There are a lot more, but three applications for us as we think about the significance of Jesus' second miraculous sign. Here's the first application I want to point out. If you want to meet God, meet Jesus. If you want to meet God, meet Jesus. What this sign shows us is that Jesus has replaced the temple. Uh, There's no more going to a a location or a building in order to meet God. You just go to Jesus. You want to meet God? There's no holy special place. You just find Jesus and you meet Jesus. He has replaced the temple. He is our great high priest. There's no more going to a place and performing a sacrifice in order for God to meet you there, in order for God to accept you. All of that is now complete in what Jesus has accomplished. And even more so, You remember what happened when Jesus was dying on the cross? Remember what happened in the temple there with the curtain? The curtain that separated in the temple what was holy from what is unholy, that curtain tore in two. That that curtain was a big keep out sign. That now is torn in two, really explaining to us that we have access to God's presence through Jesus. Look, this explains and this answers the question, how and where can people meet God? What do I do when God feels distant? What do I do when I'm I'm searching for God, when I'm wanting answers? Look, come back to Jesus. Look at Jesus and pursue Jesus in the scriptures, not just religious facts about God. And this also brings, I think, the question to bear of what kind of, of Jesus, right? Is it just the meek and lowly and reserved Jesus, or is there a balanced Jesus where he's not just meek, but he's also strong and forceful and will confront your sin? I think some of us feel a distance between God because we're just erring on one side or the other. We need a full, balanced Christ as we pursue God. Not only that, but the second application I want to point out is that corporate worship is important. Corporate worship is important. Yes, there's no need for the temple. There's no need for the Old Testament rituals and the ceremonial cleansings and the sacrifices for us to experience God. We now have Jesus for that. And yet I think it's also important to note just how serious Jesus took the corporate worship and the gathering of his people. That yes, the location of God's presence is different, but the way, the the manner in which God's people gather, is still important. That's what Jesus is addressing here. And look, I just wonder if if Jesus walked in here to College Park Fishers, I wonder what he would say about our church that would be timely and appropriate. In verse 16, he says, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. But I wonder what he would say to us this morning. I wonder if Jesus would say, do not make my house, my father's house, optional. 
I wonder if he would say, do not make my house, my father's house, about your personal preferences. I wonder if he would say, do not make my father's house a moral box to check and then move on with your week. Look, yes, we we have the presence of God in Jesus, but what we do in this space here, how important we view this, I think is also critically vital for us as followers of Jesus on this side of the cross. There should be a high priority of gathering together, of preparing our hearts to hear from God in his word, to be stirred up by the presence and the power of God, that God does something as we gather together that he doesn't do throughout the week when we're on our own with the Bible and with the Holy Spirit. And so look, we, we can't view the, the Sunday morning experience as optional or our schedules are too full this week. Let's just sleep in or, or hang out as a family or, or listen to some podcast. This is not, there's, there's nothing that can replace what God does in this space as we provide time and space for God to work as we gather with God's people. So I think corporate worship is still important. And thirdly, here, the last thing I'll point out is that the condition of our hearts is critical. Condition of our hearts is absolutely critical. Jesus here exposes the motives, the desires, even the schemes that resided in the Jewish people, and he continues to do that today. Look, the, the money changers and the, the traitors and the, uh, all those things, those were just symptoms of a heart whose root issue was a failure to worship God and to be satisfied with God. They had the presence of God there at the temple, and yet they needed to add on to that with money and with the power with what they were doing in the Gentile uh, courtyard. Look, the state of our hearts is absolutely essential. That's what God cares about. God will actually call out the Jewish people. He'll say, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? They're far from me. And so for us to be concerned about what's going on in here underneath the surface, we should have a healthy expectation that God at any moment could enter into the temple of our hearts and start overturning the tables of our sin so that he can clear out that space so that we can be satisfied with Jesus alone. And look, some of us have that door locked so Jesus can't enter in. We want this keep out sign so Jesus can't enter into our hearts. And so maybe this morning, some of us, our our next step coming out of this passage is just to give Jesus full access to every area of our lives. To Jesus come in, overturn whatever table you want, convict me, stir up a, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, and take it all where we humbly submit to him because he's after a total cleansing of our lives. Like maybe that's our application today. And look, I just want to warn you, if that's your step and you're doing business with the Lord at the end here, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for him to to stir up that conviction and you will be tempted to respond the same way that the Jews responded where you want to question God's authority. Where you let him in and be like, oh, don't touch that. No, 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 that's not yours, Jesus. We encourage you. Everything is his, that Jesus wants to cleanse you because guess what? He lives there now. He resides in the heart of believers. That's where he is through the Holy Spirit. And look, for us as believers, we want to make sure that Jesus feels at home in our lives. 
We don't want that space to be crowded with idols and with sin. We want to make room for him to feel at home, to have his way on the throne in our hearts. So we want to say, Jesus, come, cleanse our hearts, overturn whatever you want to overturn, and make us a people that are godly, that are holy, that take sin seriously, and that draw close to being satisfied with Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that Jesus doesn't just forgive us, but he also convicts us. We thank you that Jesus brings a cleansing that nothing else can. God, you ask us not just to Lord, start over or have a New Year's resolution, but God, you want to do a work from the inside out. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who have sin that has just been lingering in their hearts or thinking that they can just hide it from you. God, I pray that they would or enter into a posture of submission before you, that you are meek and gracious and loving, but you're also strong, and that you come with a type of conviction that we need, that we all need every day to say, God, search me, know my heart, test my thoughts. Oh God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.